13, and then during the week, of course, we have opportunity uh, to meet on Good Friday and then to be together on Sunday. I, I encourage you this week, and this is part of our intent in taking today to talk about Palm Sunday, is to prepare us for this week, to, to celebrate this week, to focus on uh, the wonder of our, of our Savior and Lord and all that went on during that Passion Week. So maybe this week uh, there could be some things you would do to slow yourself down. And just read through the account of the week that from Palm Sunday to his resurrection. Um, and just encourage you to do that, to take time to, to make the most of the week. Um, so we're going to start talking about um, Palm Sunday. And we're going to look at in this the, the, what went on that day and what it teaches us about Jesus. It teaches us something profound about his character and the nature of his kingdom. He's a king for sure, that's what we'll see. But he's a king unlike any other king. Um, he's the unking, and that's the, the title page there. You can see if you're old enough to remember the Uncola, uh, Seven Up uh, versus Coca-Cola. That this was their advertising a long time ago. They were the Uncola, so springing off of that, I tried to match the font and the color. Um, but the idea, Jesus, the unking. He is the unking. He is a king, but he is unlike any other king that we could ever know, and his kingdom is very different. And so we'll see as we jump into these texts just how true this is. And the call here, of course, is to receive him as such and follow him. So let's pray before we read God's word that he can teach us about himself in these ways. Lord, we thank you for who you are. You are a king unlike any other. You are so radically different than what we might expect uh, in our world, and yet so glorious and good. And I pray you'd help me, Lord, as we look at your word and as I teach from your word to, to best serve you and your precious people, Lord, each one here whom you love. And I pray we could see you more clearly and, and love you more deeply and rest in you and rejoice in you and follow you more nearly as well. Our great God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So John chapter 12, starting in verse 12 speaks of the triumphal entry. It says, The next day the, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So that's God's word from John chapter 12. And then flipping over, connected to this, and this picture of the, this king is John 13. So let's take a look at John 13, verse 1 through 17. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things 
into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do also, should do just as I have done. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. God's word from John 12 and 13. These are connected together. These two passages are connected together because they illustrate the sort of king that Jesus is and the sort of kingdom that he brings. It's a picture of a king unlike any other. It's a picture of a servant king. And a servant king is, is kind of an oxymoron, right? It's one of those things that doesn't seem to go together because a king rules over others. The king has servants under them, right? So how can you be a servant king? It's, a, it's one of those oxymorons, those words that seem to contradict each other. There's lots of actually interesting and fun oxymorons out there. Ever heard this? Pretty ugly? Tax return? Tight slacks? Dodge Ram, only choice, exact estimate, virtual reality, those are all oxymorons. And servant king is an oxymoron. The life of Christ as king and yet the servant lowly king is, is totally different than what we see in other kingships, other kingdoms. But yet his kingdom is radically different. And so I want to take time just to look at Jesus and this reality of who he is. It's radically different. He is a king who conquers by losing who captivates and captures by loving, who kills by giving life, who dominates by submitting, who gains all by losing all. This is Jesus, the King, the unking. Let's receive him as such and follow him. So let's take time just to look through this passage and the truths it teaches us in this way. First, come follow Jesus, the humble king. He is the humble king. And, and what can happen sometimes as we celebrate Easter week and other holidays, we get so used to uh, the same sorts of things we hear, we can miss the point. And, and on Palm Sunday, we can miss the profound point that we see here and who Jesus is and what's going on. Jesus comes to Jerusalem. This is a great day. And there are many other kings that have 
have come to Jerusalem, who had come and who were to come even to Jerusalem, who entered Jerusalem in different ways. Jesus comes into Jerusalem lowly on a donkey, humble. There are great kings who came to Jerusalem on glorious chariots or great siege works. But Jerusalem's greatest king of all came into the city not on a war horse, not in a chariot, not behind siege machines, not in a limo or in a helicopter, but astride a baby donkey. As predicted in Zechariah. It's quoted there in John, and we can go right to the verse in Zechariah chapter 9, 9 through 11. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then he goes on to say, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. This is a prophecy about Jesus and his fulfillment of all these things, of his peace and his reign and his rule to the ends of the earth. And cutting off all other ways of rule, all tumults, bringing peace through the blood of the covenant, rescuing those from the pit. What a wonderful prophecy. Yet he comes to do all these glorious things on a donkey. On a colt of a donkey. Not a war horse. It's a shocking reality. It's a shocking promise. And and it's shocking in its fulfillment. And Jesus riding in as this ultimate king. The king of all kings. The highest king. Conquering while humble on a donkey. The, the imagery should be shocking and profound to us. Now, the problem is, we've heard the story, right? Over and over again, and we think, well, of course, Jesus rides a donkey. It's, it, in its time, it's shocking. This is the king, they're shouting Hosanna. They're expecting him to bring the rain, and, and really, in their view of it at that point, him to come in as the promised king of all kings. And yet he comes in this incredibly humble way. It's shocking. It's, it's, it would be a shocking and even more, uh, if at the next presidential inauguration, President Smith, whoever that might be, um, comes off the platform after the swearing in, walks down the steps, comes out to Pennsylvania Avenue instead of walking or, or riding a limo, mounts a little tricycle, puts on a helmet, and rides down Pennsylvania Avenue on a tricycle. That's, that would be shocking, right? You'd be concerned for the president, probably, if you saw that. But that's the sort of imagery that's going on here with Jesus coming in to Jerusalem in a, on a baby donkey. Do you understand that? Do you see that? Do you see the shock, the, the, the truth, the statement that he's making about himself and about his reign through his entry into Jerusalem? His kingdom comes not through the sheer exercise of power and domineering force, but through the weakness, humility, Love and gentleness. He comes forcefully and violently. His kingdom comes forcefully and violently indeed, but not through the weapons of the world. The unking is a humble king who does not come to exert his rights, but to humble himself below his subjects. 
This is communicated through his entry. It's also communicated in the story in John 13, the night of the Passover. So picture that scene that you're there. It's the night, Thursday night, during the Passover week. The sun has set. Jesus has arranged for a place to experience this important Passover meal, the institution of the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate shortly. In this upper room, it's a good-sized room and a, and a fairly large-sized home for the day. Picture a room maybe 30 feet by 20 feet. So maybe, maybe what, half the size of this room or so. It's a good-sized room. Illuminated by oil lamps shining on stucco walls and maybe a tile floor. And there's a large oblong table there in the middle of the room. And about it, uh, on three sides, are pillows set in a horseshoe fashion. That's the scene. That's the scene of the upper room, the scene of of chapter 13. There are pillows laid out and people are going to sit on those pillows. They would have sat at this low table. It wasn't a high table like we have with chairs. It was one you, you lie down on the pillows on your side and you ate that way. And it says in, in Luke and elsewhere, uh, Luke chapter 22, that in that room a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. This is happening Thursday night. This this important time to be with Jesus as he gets ready to go to the cross. They don't know all that's going on. But during this important time, there's a dispute arising. Who is the greatest? Alfred Eidersheim, the historian and theologian, proposes that the squabble over who would be the greatest came as a result of the bickering over who got to sit where at the Passover feast. Because in that culture, and we have this to some degree as well, there were certain positions that were seats of honor. And the, the guest of honor would sit in a prominent position at one end of that oblong table, and then the next kind of two in line would be on his right and his left, and you didn't want to kind of be down the other end. That was not the good seat. And so Eidersheim proposes that these guys were, were, were came into the room and were like a bunch of middle school kids scrambling for seats on the bus as this started. Who gets to sit where? And they had a dispute over who was the greatest. That's the context for John 13. And they're bickering and talking and Jesus is there and he's already sitting down and somehow things have settled a little bit. Peter, Peter ends up, I think, a little further away. Best we know, John is right next to him. Um, we know that because later on Peter's signaling to John to talk to Jesus for him. Judas is actually pretty close to Jesus. The other guys are all arranged around and yet they're still bickering. And picture that scene they're bickering in the midst of things, the beginning of their feast. Jesus gets up. He rises from the table and he takes the very, very lowest place in the whole room. You see, in those days, people didn't wear socks and shoes and pants like we do. They didn't drive in cars. They wore simple sandals barefoot within the sandal. They wore a tunic that would go down to about the shins. That was the, the first garment. And then over that, they wore an overcoat. And they walked around most places. Most people walked. They didn't ride donkeys normally, actually. Um, they might, if they had some means, have a donkey, or they might ride a camel. Or if they were really wealthy, they would ride a horse. But they walked mostly. And the roads were dirty. And there were animals on the road. And we don't have this reality, mostly, usually, right? 
except if you happen to walk down the road after a parade's gone down the street, maybe. You've got animal stuff all over the, the ground and dirt. And so you're walking around in sandals, you're coming into the house, what's, what's the first thing you need? You need your feet washed. The rest of you can be clean, but your feet aren't. And so somebody has to wash the feet. And it was the lowest of the low who would do that. Actually, under Jewish law, even Jewish slaves were not required to wash feet. Even though they were slaves, they were not re required. It was usually the lowest of the low, the non-Jewish slave of the house, the very lowest person who would wash the feet. It was, it was considered extremely demeaning. This is why actually John the Baptist says, I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. It doesn't mean that the strap of the sandal is, is some you know, low point in and of itself. What John's saying is, I'm not worthy to wash Jesus' feet. Because you would untie the strap and wash the feet. And so John, wants, John the Baptist wants to express his humility before the Messiah. He uses the most extreme illustration he can think of. I'm not even worthy to do this very lowest thing, washing his feet. That's considered radical. Yet in our story in John 13, Jesus does the very lowest thing. He lowers himself under everyone else. This is dramatic. This demonstrates the amazing humility of Jesus to humble himself under everyone in the room while they're bickering about who is the greatest. He demonstrates who is the greatest. And it would have been embarrassing. You would have been embarrassed for Jesus. Just as if, you know, for some reason your local mayor or councilman decided to have a campaign of showing humility and coming around to wash toilets in your house. You'd be like, look, I get it, but you don't need to wash my toilet. That's just over the top. That's what's going on here. It's way over the top for them. Jesus is demonstrating to them his humility as the king, right? This is, this is Passover week. He's already come in as the king, right? He's the king of kings, and yet here he is. He's not only come into town on a donkey as the humble king, but now he's washing feet of the bickering disciples. Jesus' humility is far beyond compare. and it, He is the ultimate contradiction in our eyes, at least, as the humble king. And you see this in Peter's reaction, right? Peter, Peter's reaction to him is, you shall never wash my feet. Actually, uh, that's one English translation. If you want to be more literal, this is what Peter says. He says, not, never would you wash my feet for eternity. Like, it's never, ever, forever will you wash my feet. He's so horrified that, that, the, that the Messiah, the King, his Messiah, would stoop so low to wash his feet. And interesting what Jesus says, right? He doesn't give him an out, does he? He doesn't say, I get it, it's a little bit over the top. You can, this is an optional exercise. No. He says, if, you, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. That's a strong statement. Jesus required that Peter submit to this humble act. And this was a symbolic act of receiving Jesus' humble ministry for Peter in its entirety. And submitting to the call to be a hum humble leader as well, really, is implied here. And there's important theological truth for us in this interaction with Peter. 
To not allow the Savior to serve you in His humility is to deny the Savior. To not allow the Savior to serve you in His humility is to deny the Savior. That's what Peter is learning. A relative of mine once said in response to hearing the Gospel, I certainly hope I've never done anything that Christ had to die for. His relative said this because the idea that Jesus had to serve her this way was shocking to her. But Jesus says to Peter, and He says to us, if you will not let me serve you and wash you clean, you have no share with me. Jesus' humility is meant to be received by us, not just observed and not just emulated. It starts with receiving it. In this life of humility is demonstrated in his entry into Jerusalem. It's demonstrated in washing the feet and it culminates in going to the cross. There was something more demeaning than washing feet that was ahead of him. And Philippians chapter 2 paints a picture of the, the wonder of what Christ has done in the cross. Demonstrating His humility, becoming human, just God becoming human is amazing condescension, amazing humility in and of itself. That would have been enough. But then taking the form in His humanity of a servant, coming not to be served, not to, to simply order everybody to adore Him and follow Him, but to serve others. But not just that. Humbling himself to the point of going to the cross and dying on the cross bearing my sin, your sin, the sins of the world. He humbles himself in the very, very, very lowest way imaginable. Beyond imagination. It's beyond imagination. We'll, we'll actually never fully get it when we see him and know him in his glory. That he would do this thing. There'll be part of us who will feel like Peter. No, Lord. But part of us, of course, will say, thank you, Lord. You are amazing. You are worthy. He's going to go to that cross. He's going to be tortured, experience an amazingly awful physical torture, but also spiritual torture as he bears our sins, as he suffers the just penalty, the holy wrath of God towards sin on himself. He is the unking. He is the humble king. He asks us to follow him first by receiving him as our servant who came to serve us and to cleanse us and wants to cleanse us again and again and wants to use one another to cleanse us again and again. To start with Jesus, we must receive him as the humble king, as the one who cleanses us if we want to have a part with him. Now he is also the loving king with this at all fits together. We're invited to follow this one, not only the humble king, but the loving king. His love is so deep and so vast and so strong and beyond what we could ever know. John 13 says some profound things. It, it says, when Jesus knew that the hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus is facing such horror and yet, his heart is full of love for his disciples. Love for his people. Love for others. It's, it's just amazing. We, 
any of us would be so, we would be out of commission at this moment. But Jesus is full of love. Having loved his own who were in the world, it says, he loved them to the end. The word for end there doesn't just mean the time end. It actually means a different sort of end. It means to the, to the uttermost, to the full extent, to the, to the end point, to perfection. That's what it's saying. That, that's what that word means. So it isn't just that he loved them to the end of his life. He loved them as far as one could love someone else. That's what it's saying. He loved them beyond anything we could ever love. To the very end, he has loved his own. He loves his people. He loved them to the end. And now he showed them the full extent of his love in his washing of their feet. He loved them to the nth degree. He, he lived that. He demonstrated that in his wet washing of their feet and by going to the cross for them, for us. For any and all, this is the good news, for any and all who receive this wonderful good news of Jesus given for us freely. The call is to all, right? Any and all, any who would come, whosoever would receive this. There's no better option offer ever than this one who comes to serve us. But it's hard because we don't want to be served in that way. We want to be served in our own way. We would prefer to do things our way. We hold on to our, our sin, our rebellion against God. We hold on to perhaps our, our biggest sin, our, our self-sufficiency, our self-righteousness. That says, I, I'm going I'm to do my life my way. I'm going to be self-accomplished in my life. If there's a reward, I'm going to earn it. And that will get you nowhere, only into trouble. And Jesus has come to serve you. He wants to wash your feet. He wants to wash you clean. He wants you to receive what he's done for you. He loves you that much. And his appeal is simply turn away from sin and self-effort and receive what he's done. And live in the one who has loved you to the end. And know the full extent of his love and what he's done in giving himself. He's demonstrated that love to you. He's laid aside his prerogative to be Lord of all, to humble himself, to serve you, to save you. God wants to show us the extent of his love. And he does this by showing how far he will go to serve us. Joe Bailey, a Christian author and minister, had a rebellious son named Tim. Joe tried to reach Tim with arguments and rules but he still rebelled. Tim eventually left his home, left the faith, and lived a prodigal life in an old house in Chicago. Tim's rebellion broke Joe's heart. Late one night, Joe got a phone call. This is the police. The voice on the other line said, your son was arrested for a DUI. We have him here in the town jail. Joe got out of bed, drove a half hour to the jail where his son was being held. When he got there, they told him that his son wasn't there. Joe thought he had driven to the wrong place, so he drove to the next town, the next town after that, and the next town after that. Finally, around 4 a.m., Joe decided to drive to the old house in Chicago where he knew Tim had been sleeping. The door wasn't locked, so he stepped inside and looked for his son. In the faint light of the darkened room, he saw him asleep in a sleeping bag that was strewn across an old mattress. He walked over to the mattress and stood over Tim. Then moved with compassion, he bent down, lightly kissed him on the cheek, and left. 
In the months that followed, Tim started visiting his parents. He returned to church and recommitted his life to Christ. He even announced he was going into the ministry. Today, he's a pastor. Years later, Joe finally asked him what had made him want to come back home. Tim looked at his dad and said, don't you know? Remember that night years ago when I, you got a call that I was in jail? Dad, that was my friend. It was a prank. When you came to the house, I only pretended to be asleep. I was wide awake. I knew you'd driven all night in the cold, and I wondered what you were going to do to me. And all you did was bend down and kiss me on the cheek. Dad, that kiss brought me back. And Tim is now a pastor and an author and a Christian leader. You can read his books as well. Joe demonstrated his, the extent of his love for Tim by being willing to drive to all those places throughout the night and willing to express his love in a kiss rather than a rebuke. And that love brought Tim back. Jesus shows us the extent of his love and what he's done for us. And his humility in serving us and his humiliating role in washing our feet and by going to the cross. This is how God demonstrates His love. This is, this is the ultimate illustration of the extent of the Father's love. For John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. He so loved the world. So the so describes how much He loves, right? He's, this is gonna, the rest of this sentence is going to tell you how much He loved the world. He so loved the world. He loved the world so much. The extent of His love was so great that He gave His one and only Son for us. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us. How does he do it? How does he show us how great his love is for us? What his love is like? What is the extent of his love? It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The extent of God's infinite love is shown by the infinite distance bridged between a perfectly holy God and the horror of sin and rebellion bridged through the Son humbling Himself to die on that cross in our place. Only when you confront this amazing reality of the cross will you know the amazing love of the servant king. Let Him serve you. Let Him wash you clean. Let Him give Himself for you, admitting your need, receiving His forgiveness. Experiencing the full extent of his love. Finally, though there's four points, the fourth blends into this one. Finally, Jesus is a servant king. Come follow the servant king. Come follow him. First receive him. Live in who he is. But now follow him. He is the unking and his kingdom is so different. And so Jesus, in, in this demonstration of the foot washing, is, is giving them an example. As they bicker over who has what status, Jesus demonstrates his kingdom as totally different than how they think. And his kingship as totally different. And he calls them to the same. He, he says, there in Luke, he says in Matthew, probably in the same context, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In this upside-down, right-side-up world of the kingdom, true greatness is measured 
not by the most talented, not by the wealthiest, not the smartest, not the most popular or powerful, but by the one who serves the most. And if you would be the greatest of all, you must be the servant of all. Now, just in case you're hoping to qualify for that spot, I have to tell you it's already been occupied. There is one alone who is the greatest servant of all. He is the greatest. He was and is the greatest servant of all. That's Jesus. Right answer? Jesus. And it's so interesting if you look at Philippians chapter 2 and and you, you look at this passage that, by the way, is given to a church that, among many things, had a conflict going on between two important women. And Paul is saying, look to the cross. This is how we settle it. Look at Jesus. And though he had the prerogative to be the first, he humbled himself, became the servant of all, lowered himself below everybody. There wasn't anybody left out in his humble serving. He lowered himself below all and taken upon sin on that cross. And he said, it is finished. That servanthood was finished in the full extent of what he did on the cross. And then Philippians 2 and the rest of the Easter story tells us, therefore God has exalted him. He lowered himself lower by far than any ever will lower themselves. He lowered himself to serve others ultimately. And therefore God has exalted him to the highest place. That at the name of Jesus every every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. He gets the highest place because he took the lowest place. He is alone is worthy of all glory. He alone is worthy to be the king of kings. He is the right and true king. The faithful king. The only king. He is the king of kings. And he calls us to follow him. He calls us to follow him as the king of kings. And there are two aspects in scripture and in this message I want to highlight. I've been highlighting the first. It means that that he is the perfect one and, and we receive and we rest in him. And the forgiveness we have in Him, we ride into heaven on His coattails alone. We rejoice in this, that He has served us. He has cleansed us. We, by His righteous life and His death alone, we are counted righteous. We are treated righteous. We are made sons and daughters. We are safe in Him. And so, Easter week is more than anything, and first and foremost, about worship of the King of Kings, who is the unking, the humble King, the servant King. And then secondly, He calls us to the same lifestyle. As we live in Him, He calls us to the same. To love others like He loves. To serve others like He did. To humble ourselves under others like He did. Remember, He humbled Himself under sinners. He calls us to the same. And He calls us to build this kingdom in this radically different way. This is radically different than the way the world does it. And as we enter into any realm of life, whatever the area might be, even politics, I would submit, We need to emulate the servant king. 
the humble king. We need to extend his kingdom in this way. Serving others, loving others, laying our lives down, preferring others. And this kingdom will grow and has been growing. The kingdom he has brought overcomes all the other kingdoms, all these other kingdoms that are mighty kingdoms that stand in history as great and mighty kingdoms. He rules over all and his kingdom outlasts all of them. Long after Rome is but a distant memory, his kingdom stands and grows and is greater. When mighty England no longer ruled the seven seas, the kingdom of Christ remained and grew. While the evils of communism and fascism sought to eliminate all others, the kingdom continued to grow and continues to grow now. When the nuclear superpowers and the economic superpowers have long vanished, his kingdom will continue and will be great. He is the king. And he violently overtakes people's lives as it advances day by day, not through worldly power, not through political in intrigue, not through mere earthly philosophies, but through humility, love, servanthood, and sacrifice. If we're to see the kingdom advance in our area and our time, we must follow the ways of the unking. To follow his steps, to lay our lives down for others, to consider others more important than ourselves, to think more of others' success than our own, to use our resources and power and position to promote good and empower others, to not hoard power, prestige, or possessions, but give them away. This is the kingdom way. This is the way of the unking. So we see Jesus, the humble king, the loving king, the servant king, the king of kings, receive all that he is and all that he's done and follow him. So let me ask you for this week as a way of worshiping, perhaps you can take a step to trust Jesus and to emulate him. Is there a family member or friend you can honor as more important than yourself? Is there a coworker you need to humble yourself before? Are there some sort of temporal riches you can sacrifice to make others eternally rich through giving to the missions or local mission or some other way? Is there a need you can fill? Is there a person low in the eyes of the world nearby you? You can lower yourself under to serve in some way. How can you worship the unking this week? Don't do this to earn something. Do it because he's done it for you. And his love and his example compel you to become more like him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your ways. We thank you for your glory. We thank you for cleansing us, serving us. Help us to ever live receiving what you've done for us and living out of that place. I pray you'd speak to each one here this morning. Call us to yourself. Lead us in your ways. Meet with us as we continue to worship this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Pastor Toby's going to transition us to communion.